Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick. Coming up in this episode, we're going to explore the universe and then talk about ice cream and dogs. We still have to worry about nearby stars exploding and asteroids hitting the Earth and on much longer time scales. We've got time to fix it. But in the long run, you don't want to be on just one planet. 90% of the stuff in the universe is not the stuff that you and I are made of. And it's stuff that we don't even really know the properties of it yet. We can see it. We can, There are clever ways to make pictures of lumps of it. Um, but we don't know what it's made of yet. Time travel into the past impossible time travel into the future you're doing it right now you've known me long enough to know that i don't make sense 96 percent of the time hold on one second i'm looking something up are you in like a bird habitat (laughs) no i stepped outside for a moment i'm looking at the sky well number one it's not dark so you're not seeing anything we're taping this in the middle of the day I thought about Underdog as well, but I don't think that he has the cultural significance of Hong Kong Fui. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. One of the things I like to do in this podcast is do very little preparation because we want it to be much more of a free-flowing conversation during our interviews. What I do like to do, though, is... I'm pretty anal retentive kind of OCD. I like to write out the name of the guest, what they do, and then a couple of questions. The problem is in this case, our guest is an astrophysicist. And I could not even spell astrophysicist. I have to have it perfectly written out. And I tried to spell it. And I went through about four or five pieces of paper ripping it up before I finally got it right. I tell you this story. Just because going into this, I feel like I'm not even smart enough to really do justice to how complicated and how important some of the issues that we are talking about are. Luckily, our first guest is smart enough to kind of make that relatable for everybody else. And we were still able to talk about dark matter, dark energy, quasars, black holes, and really what the future is for our civilization and if there might be other life out there. This is Harvard Astrophysicist, Harvard, I can't even say it, Harvard Astrophysicist, 
Jonathan McDowell. When you first got into this, what was it about space and space exploration that really intrigued you? Well, you know, there were a couple different things that pushed me in the same direction. I'm of an age where I grew up with Project Apollo 50 years ago this summer, right? Humans, for the first time, walked upon another world. And so as a a nine-year-old, I remember just being completely blown away by the, I was, I was like walking to school and I was going like, wow, you know, there are going to be people on another world next week. So you, now with, is that of an age where you would have seen the moon landing live necessarily? Absolutely. Yes. Even though my parents tried to make me go to bed. Uh, but, um, I, 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 I remember seeing the moon landing and more than that, my, my dad was a scientist. So he actually worked at NASA the year before the moon landing. We came over from England to America for a year to be at NASA. So as a eight year old, I was running up and down the corridors at NASA Goddard. Uh, and so that it was all downhill from there, really. What do you think about people who believe that the moon landing was faked? I'm sorry. There's just no polite way to say it. Because um, and one of the I gave a, a talk recently about about the race to the moon, both from Russia and America. And it wasn't just you know Kennedy said in 1961, "Let's go to the moon," and then nine years later we launched Apollo 11. There were hundreds of rocket launches uh, associated with the program. There were tens of thousands of people across the United States and, of course, our rivals in the Soviet Union uh, who were involved in this effort. There's enormous amounts of hardware still on the ground that was associated with the program. And, you know, more than anything else, given the technology of the day, it would actually be much easier to do it than to fake it. Now, you know, you can see CGI is really great. You can imagine fooling people, but back then, no. When people think about space, I mean, do you think that the general public really understands what's going on, or is it just kind of a cool thing to look at and think about? Well, there are different levels that you can appreciate it, right? I think people, you know, people get intimidated by big numbers very easily, right? That uh, uh, the distances, the scales involved are large. Um, And so when you talk about a million miles or a billion miles, um, people kind of tune out. And yet if you talk about a million dollars and a billion dollars, they can kind of deal with that. So uh, it's just a matter of getting used to thinking in those terms. Um, But but I think people understand. I mean, there's enormous public support for space exploration. Uh, uh, And what I want people to understand, right, is there are basically two main kinds of space exploration. Um, There's the space exploration done to understand the universe, to understand the world we live in, uh, the scientific space program, which is mostly done with robots like the Hubble Space Telescope. And then there's the human exploration space program where we send astronauts out. And that really has a different purpose. It's not to understand the universe. It's to prepare for the day when we can actually live in kind of like the Star Trek universe where we have people living on other worlds. Uh, and it's this idea that it would be a good idea if we if we fill these other ecological niches, if we're not restricted to just one world because bad things can happen to nice planets uh, and we've only got one right now. Do you think that that's ever really possible, though? Like, do you think we'll ever really leave Earth and colonize other places? Because it just seems to me, with my limited knowledge, like, if we could actually go to someplace else and colonize that world, wouldn't we also just be able to fix the one that we're living on? Oh, you know, let me be real. 
entirely clear. This is not a solution to our problems of us screwing up our own planet. We have to fix that. This is a much longer-term thing, which is that there are natural threats to our world. And so even if in the next hundred years we fix the climate issue, we fix the energy issue, uh, we we fix all these other, the, the pollution stuff and all these other horrible, stupid, dumb things that we're doing to our planet... We still have to worry about nearby stars exploding and asteroids hitting the Earth. And on much longer time scales, we've got time to fix it. But in the long run, you don't want to be on just one planet. Uh, and so that's that's this multi-planetary species idea that Elon Musk keeps pushing. Uh, and I, I'm very much in agreement with it, but I think you have to not push it as a solution for our immediate problems, which I completely agree are more short-term and more important. Do you think the time frame for that idea, like, okay, we could go to other planets and do things like that, are we talking hundreds of years, thousands of years, tens of thousands of years before we'd be able to do that? Well, you have to think about stages. I mean, I do think we'll have expeditions to Mars uh, within perhaps not my lifetime, but maybe yours. Uh, I think, I mean, certainly in decades. Um, I think we'll have long-term settlements on other worlds by the end of this century if you want to what you really want right is a self-sufficient settlement something that will be able to sustain humanity if something horrible happens to earth and that's a lot longer off that's centuries off because you have to figure out how to package your whole civilization uh, uh, in a way that it can be replicated uh, from scratch on other worlds. Uh, So, for example, um, uh, you know, how do you... It's not just a matter of, uh, you know, the Martian movie, if you saw that, planting potatoes on Mars. You want to know how to build a semiconductor factory on Mars without importing any pieces from Earth, right? So that when your computers break, you can... You can have Martian-built computers locally. So that's a much longer, uh, longer-term longer challenge for the species. But I think it'll be a, a good challenge because it'll make us rethink how we do things on Earth uh, in a more sustainable way as well. That's one of the things that I always look at with space, and I'm using a very general kind of you guys with this. I always feel like you guys either have this very dialed in and know a lot about space and the way things that work, or you have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Do you ever do you ever feel that way? We try to make sure we know what we're talking about. Um, my mantra is understanding your uncertainties. So it's okay not to know what you're talking about as long as you say what your degree of uncertainty is. And so there are some things that we have a very good handle on, and and we can tell you very precisely. Um, you know, we now what is one of the amazing things that if I can go to the bigger astronomy picture for a minute, uh, in my lifetime we've gone from you know the, one of the big questions of how old is the universe, how long has it been since the Big Bang. When I was a kid, we really didn't have much of an idea. We knew it was billions of years. But we didn't know if it was 10 billion years or 20 billion years. In fact, there were two camps that, that, that had different ideas. And now we know it's 13.7 plus or minus 0.1 billion years ago. And and that's totally solid. And so, you know, uh, we start off with, with uh, you know, with ideas that are, you know, maybe right, may not be right. And we zero in and we rule things out. And the 
key trick is to be rigorously honest with yourself at every stage of that process about exactly how much you're talking out of your ass and how much you actually know what you're saying. That makes sense to me because it seems like some of the things that I hear about, they just seem the distances, the sizes, the things like are so incomprehensible that I either don't know how you guys have figured this out or there's been like somebody forgot to carry the one and this entire thing is wrong. It's actually, uh, we, we are pretty careful about these things and it's really amazing how well we can um uh figure these things out and how accurately and how you know we as time has gone on and we get better telescopes and better measurements they confirm what we only thought tentatively you know 10 years earlier uh and so we can actually do i mean one of the great things we do right is just basic surveying if you see those folks in the street uh, the construction companies with the little things where they're siding along to see how far away a building is and things like that. Um, and they kind of go from two places and they see the angle and they can go, okay, that building is, is yay far away and that lets them sort of plan the construction. We use exactly the same technique. Um, uh, in January when Earth is on one side of the sun, we look at a star. In July, when the Earth is on another side of the sun, we look at the same star and we see how much it appears to have moved. And it's just surveying. We can then figure out how far away it is in its basic geometry. And uh, there are techniques like that. And then we, we, we always, you know, you always want uh, belt and braces. And so we usually have two different techniques to confirm. I mean, for example, there's a big argument right now uh, about... Um, the rate at which the universe is expanding. So Hubble found the universe is expanding, and for decades we've been trying to nail down the expansion rate. Uh, and uh, in the weird units that we use, it, uh, we now know it's around 70. And it used to be you know, somewhere between 50 and 100. We've narrowed it down, narrowed it down. And now there's like one method that gives 67, and another method that gives 72. And we're so confident in those measurements that we actually think there's a problem that they don't agree. Something weird is going on, we've got to track down. And we think the problem is that the 67 is a measurement of uh, the universe as a whole, and the 72 is a measurement of what things are happening, how, how the universe is expanding, like, locally. Where, by locally, I mean the nearest, you know, 50 million light years or so. Uh, and so maybe there's been a change over time. There's something funky going on with the, how the expansion changes. We have this cycle of you have an approximate measurement, you get better and better and better at it. Now you've got such good measurements that different methods are actually, well, we, we, we use the phrase intention with each other, like they disagree by more than the errors, and and so then you're learning something. And that's when people get excited, because like, ooh, there's something we don't understand. <laughs> now we've got to dig deeper. What is it expanding into? I, that's what I kind of... Yeah, that, that's a common misconception that people have, that there's this like empty space that the universe is expanding into. No, no, no. So what you've got to think about is, think of the universe going on and on forever, and there are galaxies every now and again. And the space between the galaxies is sort of stretching. So it's not that the galaxies are moving. It's that the space is kind of like yeast. It's rising. And so the galaxies are getting further apart without 
themselves actually moving. And so the whole universe, everything is getting further and further apart, but there's no edge that they're expanding into. It goes on forever. I feel like I understand that as long as I don't think about it. Right. And it's one of these things that you can do the math, and then you can get to that level of, yeah, kind of understand it if you don't think about it. And once you work with it and work with it repeatedly, you start to get a better feel for it. Uh, and it's just one of these. One of the big problems with astronomy is that because it's not everyday stuff, it takes a while to develop the intuition. On a scale of one to ten, with one we don't even know what the moon is, and ten being we've got everything figured out. Where do you think that we would be right now? Well, that's, I mean, it's such a hard question. I, you know, there was the, the, there's the famous cautionary tale, right, of the Victorian scientist who said that. Science is over now, gang. We, 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 it's just the rest of science is just getting a few extra decimal places, but we basically understand everything. And, you know, that was like the year before relativity was discovered and the measurements that led to quantum mechanics and like the whole field was completely overturned within a few years. So, so you've got to be really careful in saying that you, you think it's all sorted out. Um, and yet, that's what I'm going to say. Um, uh, realizing that, you know, that I, the way I see it is if you look back in history from a few hundred years from now, in the early 1800s, basically everything was just magic. We didn't really have the we, – we, we were doing things we called science, but it was more – sort of heuristics it was it was um you know we had recipes that worked but we didn't really understand why and and now we basically understand a lot of the basic features of the world around us and there are deep, deeper layers that we haven't got to yet for sure um but i think you know there was this hundred year period in which we sort of figured out for the most part how things work in the world and our culture has not yet soaked that in yet. Uh, and it's going to take a couple more hundred years for the culture to kind of absorb that that rush of discovery. That's my feeling. So that would be like maybe a seven? Would it be like a seven on a scale out of ten? Seven. Uh, and there are some things which are a 9.9 .9, and there are other things which are still – kind of a two but but overall i think you know we we have a good story that hangs together um uh, eo wilson introduced the word consilience which is about talking about how the different bits of science all hang together and support each other and so it's not just a whole bunch of different subjects with different facts in them and you add another fact it it's the when you get a new bit of progress in one area it often locks in with something in some other area that go all right and so that fits together and and you the, you know you get more and more and more of that it's sort of like a jigsaw puzzle coming together um and if you have a bit that's going the wrong direction right it kind of sticks out and and the more pieces you add the more it sticks out and the more you go that doesn't look right uh and so the whole enterprise of science really has this incredible uh continuity to it that gives us confidence that we do in fact at least vaguely know what we're talking about one of the areas that that i believe you mentioned that you study a lot is is it dark matter or is it dark energy are those the same things or those different things those are different things. I have studied dark matter in the past and, and uh, also black holes, which is a third thing. Um, yeah, and, and these are where, you know, dark matter, I think, is, is something that's still about a three or a four. 
and dark energy is about a one on your scale. <laughs> uh, dark matter, what we know about it is that there's stuff we can't see that is the bulk of the gravity around. And that's, you know, might not be so surprising in that, uh, the, 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 here's the thing, right? Astronomers look in the sky, and the first thing they see are very shiny things, stars. And so you start off thinking, well, everything's stars. And then you measure how the stars pull on each other, and you see there are things that aren't stars that are exerting gravity that are harder to see. Well, you know, by that standard, you and I are dark matter. We don't shine like stars. Um, so there's lots of things in the universe that are dark. Uh, what it turns out is that we have lines of evidence to say that all of the things that you think it might be, uh, little planets or comets or something like that, can't, uh, there are reasons from other lines of investigation, uh, they can't be the source, there can't be enough of them to be the source of this gravity. And we think that the source of this extra gravity is some kind of elementary particle that's filling the universe that we haven't detected yet in our particle accelerators. Uh, and so that's kind of a, an awkward thing right now that, that at first it's a very humbling thing is that 90% of the stuff in the universe is not the stuff that you and I are made of. And it's stuff that we don't even really know the properties of it yet. We can see it. We can, there are clever ways to make pictures of lumps of it. Um, but we don't know what it's made of yet. And, and I think that's a big challenge for the coming years. Dark energy is even worse. Dark energy is the observation uh, made so, by some colleagues of mine uh, uh, back in the 90s that the universe is not only expanding, but that expansion is accelerating. And there's some substance that's basically very yeasty that's making the universe stretch faster and faster. And we have no clue what it is at this point. Uh, and so that is and so we gave it the name dark energy just to put it in a box and dark energy is whatever the heck is causing this effect and at this stage you know honestly there, 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 it's not that we don't have a theory for it we have at least 20 or 30 theories for it we just don't know which one is right or if something else is right so so um, at, at this stage uh, we're the very, it's very early days on, on dark energy something's going on and we're trying to figure out what it is and so so those are areas of very active research um and uh but again you know what's interesting is they affect you know those effects only start to matter on very huge scales scales bigger than entire groups of galaxies as far as we can tell, they don't—they're not changing anything on the smaller everyday scales because they're just so. Uh, uh, you need to have a lot of space before their very, very feeble effects add up to notice. Notice, and so it doesn't. It's not like these discoveries break anything in the physics that we had before. It's just uh, we're exploring a new territory. We're exploring the bigger scales that we've never worked at before, and so of course we find something new. That makes a lot of sense, and because as you were talking about it, as somebody who doesn't know that much about it, I was kind of thinking, wait a minute, so there's this thing that's all over the place that dictates so much, but you don't know what it is, but then when you mention that, oh, okay, that it only has this effect over huge, vast quantities, then I can understand a little bit more while it's while it doesn't kind of break that whole system down. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's that you and I, we live in a very odd part of the universe. 
we live in a part of universe where regular matter has glommed together to make a galaxy and in fact even uh, more so a part of that galaxy where matter is glommed together to make a solar system and planets and things and so there's a lot of stuff in this particular na- ordinary stuff in this particular neighborhood that's very unusual most of the universe is big empty space as far as ordinary matter is concerned right it's the gaps between the galaxies and and so so because we're in that unusual place the ordinary matter completely dominates what's going on around us every day and and so if you were to go out ooh, you know uh, uh 50 million light years left uh you would be you know out of the galaxy and out of the local group of galaxies and you would you would be in an area where uh there wasn't much ordinary matter and where the dark matter you know might be more relevant it'd be pretty empty and thin and stretched out even so 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 um you know you might have more chance there of seeing its effects than here where you're complete where you know the, the ratio of dark matter particles to ordinary particles is tiny you look at the black the black hole discovery recently not discovery but the the, the recent news about the black hole why was that so That's significant important. yes it's it, it's mind-blowing and, and here's why um so I've been writing, you know, theoretical and observational papers on black hole for decades. Uh, and we just, you know, we had strong evidence that black holes existed and that they had more or less the properties that Einstein's theory uh, says they, that they should. And so we've been assuming, I mean, we've been confident that the equations work. But because these things are so far away, right, before we've never, you know, or these the things we've been seeing they've just been dots uh we've never had an actual picture showing detail uh and so we've just had to trust that the equations that we're using work and one of the main predictions of the equations is that the um the the black hole's gravity is so strong that so there's matter falling into the black hole right and the reason we can see the thing at all right is you can't see the black hole it's black but the matter falling into it gets so squeezed by the gravity of the black hole that it gets really, really hot and therefore shiny. Um, it's glowing like crazy. And the gravity of the black hole bends the light coming from that glow. And it bends it so that as seen from Earth, it makes this ring. And so the theory predicts that and it predicts how big the ring should be for a given mass of black hole. Well, we looked at this uh, this this galaxy called uh, M81 Virgo, and uh, we know already the mass of the black hole. So we knew what the theory said the size of the ring should be. So they took the picture, and guess what? It's exactly the size that that uh, Einstein's theory says it should be. So that was really nice to see. Uh, we would have been astonished if it had been anything different, but still, um, to to you know, it's it's kind of a big sigh of relief. Okay, right, the equations we've been using forever are right. The black hole is doing exactly what we predicted it would do. So now we can you know have more confidence in everything else we've been saying for the past thirty years. And that that was kind of the theory that phone that forms so much of the backbone about what you guys are doing, right? That was kind of like, yes, we are. This is right. Well, yes, and I mean there are other aspects of it. So it's our theory of gravity, 
right, that Einstein came up with in 1916, and then other people uh, like Schwarzschild and Kerr uh, elaborated in the 1920s and the 1960s. You know, there were a whole bunch of weird predictions that came out of that theory. And the first weird prediction is that gravity would bend light, and that was confirmed as early as the early 1920s, uh, with observations of a solar eclipse. And then there were other predictions that were much harder to test. What Another one was something called gravitational waves, again, predicted by the 1916 theory, discovered exactly 100 years later in 2016. They just got the, the Nobel for, for that. And then this uh, event horizon size uh, result is one of, I'm not sure it's the last big prediction of, of Einstein's theory, but it's another, you know, it's sort of like the attitude is, oh, Einstein was right again. A theory which seems so out there in 1916, uh, every time we've managed to find a new test for it, right, 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 right. And, and so it seems like this strange theory of gravity really does describe the way the universe works and indeed you know the one of the cool things is it's so you know abstruse right it's so it seems not every day but the dramatic effects that happen near a black hole earth's gravity makes the same effects just like you know a billion times weaker hmm. and so one of the effects that, that's related is that if you take a clock and move it out into space. Well, let's say if you take a clock and make it work right in, in, in a normal place, which is space, because most of the Earth is space, if you move it down onto the surface of the Earth, um, it starts running slower. Time, here at the bottom of the gravity well, as we call it, on, on the surface of the Earth, runs at a different rate than it does when you're far from heavy things. And it's not just the Earth. Any Anything with gravity makes time run slower. And one of the consequences of that is if you put a clock on a satellite, it runs at a different rate than a clock on the Earth. Well, funny thing, GPS depends on clocks on satellites. And so they actually have to tweak the rate and they have to make the clocks run slightly fast on the satellites to compensate for this Einstein gravity effect. Otherwise, GPS wouldn't give quite the right answers. So would time effectively almost stop inside the black hole then? Absolutely. Well, there's two different things. It wouldn't stop for you if you were falling into the black hole. Uh, uh, and so the way it works is that you experience a different amount of time from a, uh, someone who stays well away. So if you and I go near a black hole, and you sensibly stop uh, about 10 million miles away, and I visit, I'm nosy, so I go closer in. I don't actually go in the black hole, because if I go in the black hole, I'll never come back. But if I go, like, close to the black hole and then come back, you've been like, I've been, Jonathan, I've been waiting for you for, like, six months. I'm like, I was only there 10 minutes. I will actually have experienced a different amount of time from you. That just blows my mind. Like, I can't even comprehend it necessarily. Do you ever I mean, feel like somebody... But we've actually tested it. We've put clocks on rockets and showed that they have this effect. And, you know, like the millisecond changes, right? But, but it agrees with the predictions exactly. So we're very confident that this is a real effect that really happens in the real world. Do you ever get scared? Because I've always loved space. I've always loved the stars. But I can only look at it 
for about five minutes before I just become terrified of all these things and all this stuff that is out there. Do you ever get like that? No, I wouldn't say terrified. I, I have a sense of awe, uh, and I think it's incredibly beautiful. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, it's, there are plenty of things that will eat you here on Earth. I, I find a sense of wonder in looking at how big everything is and imagining the vast spaces. But I don't feel intimidated by it. I, I'm, I'm just sad that, you know, it's so hard and that the stars are so far away I won't get to visit them. But we're, I think, an important part of the universe because we're that part of the universe that asks questions about itself. Why have... I mean, I just I can't fathom the idea that there isn't something else out there in terms of a species like ourselves or any kind of intelligent life that would be able to. Why haven't we found that? Like it just seems mathematically impossible, almost. Well, not no. It, it's it's certainly possible. It, it, it's a bit of a surprise, I would say. Um, but the more we find planets around other stars. You know, one of the good things is we found in the past few years that almost every star in the sky that you see has planets around it. And that didn't have to be true. Planets might have been very rare. So that makes it all the more surprising that we haven't been visited, right? Uh, uh, and so what that says is that, and what we're learning is that, yeah, there are lots of planets out there, but most of them are not exactly nice vacation spots. Uh, that uh, there are all kinds of interesting ways to make a planet that's like nearly livable but really not uh, and so um, the fraction of it turns out that the fraction of stars that have planets that are kind of the size of the earth and the right distance from the sun and so on and so forth um, is actually not bad but the fraction that have you know maybe oceans and um you know they're, they're like the right conditions for life is probably a lot smaller uh, and they're pretty rare and then we still don't understand all of the story of the evolution of complex life so my, my bet would be that a lot of worlds have sort of bacteria level life but maybe the jump to uh you know complex life is a little harder and, uh, and so I'm sure that there are aliens out there, but maybe not in this galaxy. Maybe, you know, the nearest ones that are alive now are in some other galaxy millions of light years away and just too far to contact us. So, so that, that's a little sad. Uh, and maybe if once we finally do start to explore the galaxy, we'll find that there were other intelligent species that have left artifacts but you know they just didn't they're they're not around anymore and we're we're we've only been around as a spacefaring species for 50 years or so um the universe is billions of years old right 10 billion years old so if you imagine that species evolve maybe last a million years and then go extinct or something like that you know maybe there have been many civilizations but just they're not around anymore that makes sense in terms of, I know you do a lot with the space program and the study of the space program. Where do you think that we are with that? Are we in a good place? Are we in a decline? What do you think is the future of the space, essentially of space exploration for us? I think it's a mixed story. That uh, certainly in the scientific space program, where we're continuing to make dramatic progress, um, 
the you know that you're getting these new discoveries you see you know on the internet all, all the time right of, of uh, like the black hole result uh like um uh, uh discovering new, these other planets uh on the human space program i think things are a little uncertain uh certainly uh in terms of access to space what elon musk has done with spacex has really shaken the industry up in a good way and uh you know but he is dependent on investment from nasa um and uh for a lot of what he does and and uh nasa right now for its long-term space program is still planning to depend on uh its own sls rocket that has horrible development problems uh and is super expensive and so it's just not clear that we have our act together uh and uh i i think it will shake out a bit in the next couple of years and we'll have a better idea of of uh whether you know uh, musk's big gamble on the what's called the starship rocket revolutionize things or it could be a huge bust and then of course the chinese if we don't get our act together um, the Chinese are definitely uh, making enormous progress. They were a third-rate space power 20 years ago, and they just this past year became the country launching the most rockets. Uh, and so, and they they've uh, you've got a robot exploring the far side of the moon right now, and things like that. So they're really on the up and up. And in a few years from now, um, uh, they may be serious competitors. Do you think that we still dream as big as we used to? Yes, I do. I think I think that uh, after a period when we didn't, um, in the maybe the eighties and nineties, we are back to dreaming big. Uh, and certainly, the the leading people involved in this have you know really ambitious, great ideas. Uh, whether, but when you say we, <laughs> you know that's that's. Uh, the Congress and the voters and the taxpayers have a role to play here uh, because dreaming big is rarely cheap. I mean, it's cheap compared to a lot of other things we do. Um, you know, it, it's tiny compared to the defense budget. It's, um, you know, the comparisons often made that, that uh, um, I don't know how much Avengers Endgame cost to make, but you could definitely do a robot Mars mission for the cost of making Avengers Endgame, right? That is true. I mean, but I feel like humanity, we don't we don't respond well to that kind of stuff. Like we need an existential threat before we really get going. Yep, there is that. And even then, we don't always really get going. So, you know, I think one of the things that NASA has done is operated a fleet of satellites studying the Earth, from which we get a lot of the data that tells us about climate change. And uh, that is an existential threat. Uh, and yet, we're still not getting our act together about it. I feel like I could probably talk to you and ask you questions for conservatively a month, I think, about, <laughs> about space and everything. But are you ready for some kind of pointed, hard questions? Okay, I'm bracing myself. Go ahead. What's the best space movie? 2001 Space Odyssey, no question. What's what's the worst space movie? Ooh, so much competition. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, I give movies points for being having space in them at all, right? Um, but 
uh, I was not a fan of Interstellar. There were parts of it that were good. They did the black hole part actually not badly. Um, what else did I really not like? Jupiter Ascending was not great. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I think there may be some really bad ones that I've successfully wiped from my mind. I've, I've always heard The Martian is pretty... In terms of like, okay, that's fairly scientifically realistic. Is there any other ones that like, oh, they got that pretty much, yeah, like that's what that would really be like? Yeah, so, so you know, the um, let, let's say the, the, there's a subgenre of space movies, right, which are the, you know, near term, no aliens involved, just this is how we're going to do it hardware kind of movies. Uh, like the, the Martian is the classic example of that. Uh, I mean, 2001 does have aliens, but it has a lot of that stuff in, too, and they did a very good job. Um, what else? I would say Contact. Contact's a great movie. Of course, it was based on a book by Carl Sagan himself. Uh, and uh, um, the characters in that movie embodied scientists in a much more realistic way than I usually see. What is the best astrophysicist joke? Oh dear. Uh, <laughs> pass. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, 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 I need warning for that one. You need to. You need a little bit more on that one. Um, you have an asteroid belt named after you, right? Just one asteroid, not a whole belt. Yes. So, uh, so there's an asteroid in the asteroid belt called Minor Planet Forty Five Eighty Nine McDowell, which is a great honor. In terms of universe speaking, is it a good asteroid? Like, are you happy with this particular asteroid? Or do you feel it's, like you should have gotten a better one? I don't deserve a better one. There are better ones. But I, I'm, you know, I, I'm perfectly happy with this one. It's in the main asteroid belt. It's a perfectly solid, normal asteroid. It's only a couple miles across. Um, but but it's mine. And um, I keep trying to persuade them that I should have the mining rights to it because it's named after me. But I don't, they don't seem to be going uh, and um, yeah, no, the the you know you'd uh, on the one hand you maybe you'd like an asteroid that is coming close to the Earth to be named after you. Those are the more exotic ones. On the other hand, it would be really embarrassing if it was an asteroid named after you that wiped out all life on Earth. So maybe that's not such a good idea. <laughs> no. Star Wars, Star Trek. Which one you got? Oh, Trek. I mean, I like Star Wars too. Don't get me wrong, um, but I like Treks. Uh, so things I like about Trek are its vision of inclusiveness, of you know diversity, of a positive future where different species across the galaxies uh, can get on together, that even the Klingons can join the Federation eventually. Um, and Star Wars, I don't really love. I mean, you know, in the moment, it's a good run, right? But but the theory behind it that there's this special group of people, the Jedi, who are sort of you know born princes or something, is is a kind of a little icky. Um, so so love the movies, but but then when you step back and think about it a bit more, not completely obvious. The Jedi are really the good guys. Time travel. Possible, impossible. Time travel into the past, impossible. Time travel into the future, you're doing it right now. And one of the things that relativity tells us is that um, 
the the rate at which you travel into the future can change. So this is what I'm telling you about the uh, getting near the black hole, right? One way to travel 200 years into the future is go very near a black hole, spend like a day there, come back out, 200 years past in the rest of the universe. So... Uh, uh, so normally we're traveling through time at the rate of one day per day. I'll, I'll, I'll get to tomorrow, 24 hours from now, but, but you can change that rate depending on how fast you run and on what gravity you're in. So that kind of time travel all the time, but it's one direction, the future only. Um, is there anything that you've got coming up? Like anything that, well, I do want to mention, so, so I work on, uh, on a project that involves an X-ray telescope. Uh, X-rays are made by very hot stars, like matter falling into black holes or exploding stars, travel across the universe. They get stopped by the Earth's atmosphere, and, and, and so which is probably a good thing. Uh, and so to look at them, you have to put your telescope on a satellite uh, in space. We launched our satellite 20 years ago this summer, the Chandra X-ray Observatory that we operate from a mission control center in the Boston area. Uh, and uh, it's been super successful. We're hoping for another 10 years of the mission, but, but this year is Chandra's 20th anniversary in space. And so we're going to be celebrating that. You can go to uh, chandra.harvard.edu to see some of the incredible images that we've taken with the telescope. Uh, and so uh, I hope you'll uh, join us in, in uh, celebrating that really successful science mission. That's awesome, man. That's really cool. Um, I'll check. I'll you, watching your entire career go up on a pillar of flame as the uh, space shuttle takes off, <laughs> and you're sort of standing on the beach, going, "Don't blow up! Don't blow up!" Uh, <laughs> that was that was uh, pretty intense twenty years ago. Okay, now let's go ahead and give John Shaw a call, and I just want to let you guys know. He has some very interesting opinions on space. Let's just say that. Hey there, good old buddy, old pal. Were you trying to do a different voice there? Because I feel like you answered the phone, tried to think about something to do, and then just bailed on it. Not at all. I I answered the phone the way that I, I wanted to answer the phone, knowing that it was you calling. That's how you normal. How do you normally answer the phone? Like if somebody calls you and you don't, you're not entirely sure of the number. How do you answer the phone? I usually go, "This is John." Hmm. Which of those three words? Which Which one are you really putting the emphasis behind? The this, the is, or John? Like, are you saying this is John, this is John, or this is John? Probably this. Probably like this is John. Okay. How do you, um, when you go outside and you look up at the stars, how do you feel about space? <laughs> this is a bait question, but uh, you know what? I'll play along. It's fine. I, I don't know what to think about space, to be honest. I know that there's a lot of it. That's all you got. That's the only thought that you have in terms of space is there's a lot of it. Look, I, I know I know what your real opinion is. Why don't you just say it and stop trying to hide it? <laughs> I because I'm not, I don't want you to bait me. I'm not baiting you. I'm just simply asking a question. Like, what is your real opinion about space? Stop lying to the people. I mean, maybe I should be. Maybe I should clarify. Like, let's let's go to the moon. Let's let's inspect every every inch of the moon. Let's figure out what that is. Well, it's the moon. What do you mean? Figure what? out what that is? Like, it's the moon. Maybe maybe is one part. Maybe one part of the moon. There's 
there's you know uh, breathable air or, or water or a, or a giant lake somewhere. You know, they're like, let let's go, let's explore space. Where do you start? Well, outside in space, I mean, you start at the moon, essentially, right? That's what I just said. But there's so much of the moon that hasn't even been explored. But, you know, we're, we're going to worry about, you know, getting some grainy-ass picture of a, of, a, of a black hole that no one's ever going to truly know what it is. I'm not entirely sure if you have a really good point or if you know absolutely nothing about space exploration. Do you feel like there are other species like ourselves out there? I do, but I'm, I'm going to sound like a complete crazy person. Because somewhere, somewhere in my my brain, I feel like maybe, just maybe, there's like a thousand universes like ours, and I'm I'm doing what I'm doing right now, you know, somewhere else. Is that that sounds crazy? I'm sure, but I think that they actually kind of look at that, you know, in the sense that every possible outcome could potentially like you could be in all these different places I, I don't really understand it i mean we would have to talk to somebody smarter than us but look here here's the basic issue that i feel like that we're getting at is that you and i once had a conversation which was late at night after a night on the town and if i remember correctly <laughs> we were looking up at the stars together and oh, what God. you told me is that you don't really believe in space see i told you you were gonna bait me this is all for you to bait me. Because you wouldn't tell the truth. You're trying to hide your real opinion. It's 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 not that I don't believe in it, but kind of how I just explained. I don't know. It, it's it's kind of like it, it's kind of like my Bigfoot thought. I've never seen Bigfoot. I've never seen any actual proof that there is a Bigfoot. So until someone presents me with that proof, or I see him or her myself, I'm going to be skeptical. It's the same thing with outer space for me. See, that's what I don't understand about it, though. There's just so much out there. I look at it in the possibility of, okay, you've never seen a picture of it, but how could there not be? When you're talking about potentially billions of galaxies with billions of planets, like from a statistical standpoint, it's almost it would be almost be impossible for there not to be other life. Like that's where I don't understand it because you say that you want proof, but how – like the opposite it's, would also be true in that sense. Well, once again – it's just who I am as a person. Like, I know that there's a shit ton of ocean that's never going to be explored because I've been there. I've seen it. I've never been to outer space, nor will I ever go to outer space. There's been what, like 300 people that have actually gone to outer space? I have no idea. Why do you, why do you doubt yourself so much? Why do you doubt yourself that you could go to, could go to outer space? I'm never going to go to outer space unless the world's ending. And if I pay a billion dollars to get on, you know, uh, that Virgin, uh, who owns Virgin Airlines? Uh, um, Richard Bronson? Richard Rich Branson? Yeah, Richard Branson's, like, private space shuttle. Would you go? Like, if you were on one of these missions and they said, hey, we got this mission. You can go to another world. It's going to be you and your family. Would you go? Of course I would. 100%. But the world's not being destroyed. Like, they're just offering it to you. And, 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 like, when I have no idea what's on the other side, we just know that there's some kind of other planet. No, let's go ahead and say for the sake of it that you you assume it's going to be reasonably safe. Like, you don't know what's going to be out there, but you're not going to die. 
I mean, I, I would do it just because I'm curious. Like, I'm curious like that, and I would. Then, then if I could do it, then I would be a lot more confident in telling you, you know, when I look up at the stars in, in the sky, that yeah, there is, you know, life out there, something beyond what we see. Why did the skeleton want to get into the barbecue grill? <laughs> why? I, I don't know why. See if there was any spare ribs. <laughs> Listen, I, I, have, I have a question. For, I have a question for you. Okay. So you're, you know you're asking me about space and whatnot, which you you never you know gave your opinion on it. That's fine. Um, you never asked uh, for my opinion on it. Well, so so what is what is your opinion on it? My opinion on it is that we really we have a basic idea of what's kind of out there, but it's so immense and so big that we can't really comprehend it. And quite frankly, for me, when I try to think about it. I'm in awe of it, and then after about five minutes of thinking about it, it terrifies me, and I just look back at the ground. I'm in amazement, but then I go, well, you know, I'm never going to learn anything in my lifetime about space, Unless, you know, because we're not going up there anytime soon that I know of. I like my this, question is— I like this idea that you have to just give up. I like it. It's good, good strategy. <laughs> it's, not, it's not giving up, but there's so much else in the world, uh, you know, or, or physically in front of us. That I have no, no no knowledge of that I would rather spend my time trying to learn about that than worry about something that, you know, I don't have that big of an interest in in the first place. All I'm imagining is you, like, walking outside with an ice cream cone, probably vanilla. I feel like it would probably be a vanilla ice cream cone. You walk outside, you look up at the stars, and you think to yourself, well, not learning anything about that. Fuck it. And then walk back inside. <laughs> I mean... Everything you just said is pretty accurate, except for the uh, the, the the flavor part. I, I'm definitely a chocolate guy or vanilla. But. Yeah, okay, that's good. That's good. I don't trust so, people. I don't really trust people who don't eat chocolate. If your first choice isn't chocolate in any kind of ice cream situation situation or any kind of chocolate flavor, I really I really kind of look down on that. <laughs> I you know it's too as long as you don't order strawberry. I'm oh. Right. Strawberries for if you order straight strawberry, then you need to be investigated by the law. If you see someone, <laughs> if you see someone in an ice cream parlor or an ice cream shop or whatever that's eating straight strawberry ice cream, you should call the police. <laughs> can we? Can we like? Can we sanction that? Can we like tell everyone to do that? I think so. I guarantee it? that they're going to arrest them and have them on something. <laughs> so, getting back real fast. So, how do you feel about? Deja vu, then. I think it's basically what is. I think the sign. I go, I go with the scientific aspect of it. I don't believe it's any kind of larger thing like you've had a past life. I think that it's a misfiring of the synapses in your brain, and you're accidentally remembering something that I, I believe that's what the technical kind of term is. That like your brain is is thinking you've experienced something before, but it's actually just like a misfiring in your brain. My thoughts on space are what they are. However. With deja vu, because I've, I've I've experienced it quite a bit, as I'm sure everyone else has, uh, you know, it makes me wonder that you know is that some kind of you know connectivity, uh, you know, to to another life, to you know, me doing what I'm exactly doing in that moment, but 50 billion light years away. So what you're saying is you think that deja vu could be essentially like. The other universe you is experiencing the same thing at the same time or something along those lines? 
Yeah, something like that. I mean, it's it, it's just to me, it's always been one of those things that it's the weirdest feeling knowing that you've been or you've done something before, but yet you you haven't. Like, why do you know? And I know you just said the scientific explanation, and it makes sense, and I'm sure that's what it is. But speaking like from strictly a crazy theoretical point, like that would be pretty badass if like that was actually what it was. Was you know your your brain connecting with like 50 billion light years other galaxy years brain like in the same moment so like universe one you connects with universe two you for a brief moment and you happen to be doing the exact same thing yeah see this is what i don't understand about that i don't take any kind of issue with like who knows Maybe that is possible that there's other universes and things like that. What I don't understand about it, though, is that you have that belief, but then don't believe the things that are kind of right in front of you. Like you don't believe in dinosaurs, even though we have bones of them. And you don't believe in the possibility of life on other planets, even though there's mathematically, it's basically impossible that there couldn't be the other thing. So that's what I don't understand. You've known me long enough to know that I don't make sense 96% of the time. That is true. That is true. <laughs> However, the four percent sometimes I have some some genius ideas. The dinosaur thing's pretty stupid. I'm sure I look like like you know a buffoon. However, you know it, it all goes with with the physical thing. Once again, I've never seen a dinosaur. I'll never see a dinosaur. Well, unless you classify crocodiles and alligators, but whatever. But like I've experienced deja vu. I don't think that we have answers necessarily. Well, we do. I mean, we do have scientific answers about what deja vu is. I explained them earlier. But go ahead with your multi-universe theory. No, no. I, it's fine. We don't have – the, the the bigger question here is is if you and I were, were in a sci-fi sitcom, say like the X-Files, who would be Mulder and who would be Scully? I've not seen enough of the X-Files to really know. Jesus, so you're going to take the politic- the politically correct way? Well, I can't answer the question if I don't know the – like I don't know what the show really about the show that you're talking about. I don't – I actually don't even know – I, I honestly don't even know which one Moeller is and which one Scully is. So how can I answer the question? <sighs> Whatever. I had a great joke lined up there and you completely ruined it, not even intentionally. OK. Um, you tell me which one, which one for your joke would have been better for me to say that I was. Scully, you're definitely the woman. Okay, I'm. I would be Scully. Let's hear the joke. See, now it's ruined. Well, now you're not going to tell us the joke. No, I can't now. What did you do to your phone? Hold on one second. I'm looking something up. Are you in like a bird habitat? What the fuck is going on? <laughs> no, I stepped outside for a moment. I'm looking at the sky. Well, number one, it's not dark, so you're not seeing anything. We're taping this in the middle of the day. No, it's, it's uh, what, 7.30. It's getting darkish, and I can, I can see the moon. Thank you very much. That's what I was looking for. Okay. Now what? I got did my you... goggles on and my cape on, and I'm going to walk there. How does, why did you go outside? It's nice outside, and... And you got me thinking about when's the last time I looked, you know, you and I were together and we looked together, you know, looked up at the the sky together. Do you imagine us? Do you imagine me looking at the moon and you looking at the moon, but we're looking at the same moon from different places? Duh. Okay. 
What's your what? Okay, ask me your your sci-fi question again, and let's set up your joke and move on with this. God, you're like my wife. You know that you you once somebody gets something planted in your brain, you do not let it go until you get like the resolution. Well, you said you had a good joke. You're not going to say, "Hey, I've got a great joke," and then not tell anybody what it is. Let's hear the fucking thing. It, it, it wasn't really so much of a joke. It was more of like. You know, I, I say, who are you? And you say, you know, well, of course I'm Mulder because, you know, you try to be the alpha male. And I go, no, I'm Mulder. You're Scully, but I wouldn't let you get abducted by aliens. That that, that was a joke. That was That's not even a joke. Well, I had a little bit more to, to do, but it's fine. Let's just move on. Let's move on to... to Wait a minute. How long have you been planning that? Uh, I would say about ten seconds, as as I was thinking about the X Files. Okay, all right. That it was. It, I mean, at least you put the effort in. I'm proud of you for that. Listen, I we need to talk about this top five because well, we're not even close to this top five yet. We have a couple it's of the other hardest things. Top five we've ever had to pick five for. Okay, well, we'll talk about that in a second. But I agree with all you. Right. It is the it is the hardest top five we've ever done. Like, I did not realize how hard that it would be. First off, though, let's go ahead. John's Fast Five. Pew, 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 pew. John's Fast Five. Pew, 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 pew. John's Fast Five. My God! My God! Wait a second. Wait. This isn't going to work while he's out awake. You know that, right? Do you have a Do you have a fast five this week? No, I don't have a fast five. But I would like to rant and complain and ask you what you do when a, when a number calls you that you do not know, and you're seventy five percent sure it's a telemarketer. What do you do? I answer it. I love to answer those phone calls and just try to talk to those people. I love it. <laughs> I do the same thing. However, I was chastised this week. By somebody in my life, she will remain nameless because apparently I gave the person on the other end of the phone too hard of a time. And all she was, she was an actual telemarketer. She wasn't a scammer. However, I apparently shamed her too much uh, according to this person. Does their name rhyme with Yelissa Hull? <laughs> uh, yes, it does. I, I, I understand where she's coming from. Like those people, if you're a telemarketer working in like a business, you're just doing your job. Like they don't want to be calling you any more than you want to be talking to them. But I do like to give them a hard time. I'm not mean I, about it though. Are you mean about it? No, I'm not mean. I just, you know, I'll answer the phone and I'll say, uh, you know, like, hello, this is Dr. Scholl. And then they'll be like, oh, is, is John Scholl there? And I'll be like, this is Dr. Scholl speaking. And I'll just confuse them, and then, you know, half the time either they'll hang up or they'll try to actually see if this is John Shoulder talking to. I had one the other day that um, I they called, and they wanted me to take a survey, but I told them, hold on a second, I'm driving. I've got a semi filled with uh, gas that I'm trying to drive, and I'm, I'm in a bit of traffic, but just hold on for a second. <laughs> And they they actually waited on the phone. They were like, well, be, then the person on the other end said, well, sir, could you please be safe? And I said, don't worry about it. They'll get out of my way. And then they hung up. <laughs> I, I, I personally, I'm a fan of, uh, you know, 
you answer and they go, you know, hello, this is so-and-so, you know, is this Mr. Scholl? And I go, yes, this is John. Uh, I don't speak very good English, though. <laughs> and then they go, you know, can, can I, do you have a moment? I go, yes, but my English isn't very good. And then there's just silence. I feel like you should do it, but speak perfect English. Like, oh, hello, this is John. My English isn't very good. How are you? And just see what their reaction is. I'm averaging probably 20 to 30, uh, you know, either scam calls or telemarketer calls now a week. Like, it's bad. No, I don't think that anyone – If basically, if someone is calling you on the phone, it's essentially a telemarketer. I don't think that people actually call you anymore at all. I mean, my house phone is going crazy. Oh, your landline. Thank God you got that. I've had, I've had probably five conversations with people that listen to this podcast that don't know why you hate landlines so much they don't understand it well it's just a waste it's just an absolute waste no the reason that i hate the fact that you have a landline is because it's just an absolute waste there's no reason that you should have a landline you don't need it you have your phone in your hand why would you need a landline if you're under the age of 60 you don't need a landline you just don't need it that's why i'm so upset about it it's just a waste well you know what it's it's nice when it rings okay what do you call an alligator that works on wall street uh, I don't know. What do you call him? An investigator. <laughs> oh man, that was actually a pretty good one. Yeah, I know some of them are getting pretty good. Um, do you want to do you, what? Let's do you want to go to our top five right now? Do you want to talk about Game of Thrones really quickly? What did you think of the last episode? <laughs> I well, apparently, and I'm quite disappointed uh, in, in your thoughts on it. Um. And, and I uh, – how, how do I say this? I understand your frustrations with the episode being too dark. However, I thought it was great from top to bottom. I mean I, I've never – an hour and a half has never gone by so fast uh, that I can remember uh, watching TV. This is what I – I thought it was great. This is – so in terms of an A to B to C to D grade, what would you give it? I would give it an A minus. Okay. So – this is my rant, and I think that other people who are also kind of more nerdyish fans of the show would also have also felt this way, which is why there's kind of a controversy over it. If you really look at the characters and kind of the basic theme of the show, and it's this idea that it's not a fairy tale, right? The bad guys, the bad guys win in real life, right? Like this doesn't work out. And that was kind of a fairy tale episode. I don't think that anybody really has an issue with who killed the Night King, spoiler alert. It was just the fact that he got killed. And you had essentially <laughs> eight eight seasons of building him up and he's dead. So <laughs> two things right there. First off, I love how you say spoiler alert after you say the spoiler. That's typical Nick Vincent all day. That's how I do it. Uh so, I mean, I'll say straight up that, you know, I am not the biggest nerd when it comes to Game of Thrones. I've read, like, half the first book, which I don't really even remember, but I've watched the TV show from day one. So that, that's that's where I'm coming from. Um, I also thought that the way they killed off the Night King, spoiler alert, was, uh, was, was, wasn't weak, but it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. It doesn't mean that I'm disappointed in how they did it. I just... I don't know how she gets through or gets around, like, his top generals. 
I mean, she is kind of a trained assassin. I don't have any issue. They did set her up. Like, I think that they did set her up. I don't have any... She's not a Mary Sue in the sense that she's like, oh, here's this character that's the best at everything. I don't agree with that. And I do believe that they gave her... Like, they showed her training as an assassin for six seasons. So I don't have an issue with that. It's more that just the Night King, essentially throughout the entire season made all of five hand gestures. He raised the dead twice, and he threw a spear once, and then he died. I, I guess I, I don't necessarily... It's always been a show... It's kind of like The Walking Dead to me, which I no longer watch, however. Uh, but it's like, you know, the dead are ultimately the, the ultimate bad guys, right? But so very little of that show is focused on them. I feel like it's the same way with... Game of Thrones, like the White Walkers and the Night King, have always been the main bad guys. However, you know everyone else, you know the the characters, the the humans, are are what the story is centered on. So I am perfectly fine with them having one episode, you know, and they gave the Night King twenty minutes or whatever of screen time, and now now he's dead. I I, I don't think it's over yet, though. I maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I I think. There's still going to be something else. There's three. There's three hour and a half episodes left. Something's going to have to happen. Why can't melons have weddings? <laughs> um, this is going to be a good one. I don't know why. Because they can't elope. <laughs> that was one of my favorite ones too okay let's go ahead and get into our top five and like we talked about earlier this is the hardest top five so much harder than i actually thought it was going to be when we suggested it but what our top five is in honor of john charles new dog who is awesome baby, and mac, baby mac his name's mac i both like it and hate it at the same time but in well, honor for those who don't know uh we rescued a dog this week uh he's a great pyrenees that's a big ass dog uh, so yeah, he's huge. He I, he's probably 120 pounds, and like he's like not skin and bones, but like he has some weight to gain. I mean, he is a big dog. So I came up with Mac for two reasons: one, because it used to be one of my favorite baseball players, Mark McGuire, and he's like a Mack truck. Okay. I mean, you know, whatever. Fuck y'all if, if you don't like it. I like it. It's all that matters. Did. It- Okay. Well, anyway, our top five this week is top five fictional dogs. Who you got number five? So, I I didn't know how to do this, right? It's I, a shocker. I literally, I, I, I literally have a list. That was rude, by the way. I literally have a list <laughs> of like 30 fictional dogs. No, the more I looked at it, the more I was like, oh my gosh, this is much harder than I thought it would be. But it's, so, hey, look, this, you got to boil it down to, to, to down to the top five. Who's your number five? Number five, I got Brian from Family Guy. I like I that. I got no issues with that. Maybe I have some issues with that. I think that's pretty solid. My number five, and this is the only one that I did this with. The other one, I kind of took a unbiased opinion. This is just my personal one that I put in. My number five is Hong Kong Fui. <laughs> I mean, I can't hate. I can't hate. That's a, first off. That's a badass name. And yeah, it the is. Character is, is is awesome. So I can't. I can't hate on that. It's easily probably the best um, name fictional dog. Uh, I don't know. There's. I mean, there's uh, some pretty badass ones. Like my number four, and I wanted to put him higher, but I couldn't. 
but I, I went with Scooby-Doo. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's one of those that, like, when you look at it, I didn't want to put him on my list. I have him as number three, but I couldn't okay. – you can't leave him out. Like, you just can't leave him out. Yeah, that's the problem. There's, like, ten characters that shouldn't be left off the list, but you have to if you're doing a top five. Okay, so like I said, my number three is Scooby-Doo. My number four is McGruff the Crime Dog. <laughs> See, he's in like my top 20. I would not have put him in my top five. But everybody knows who he is. You're right. Yes. But in terms of uh, – no, see, I can't even say that. You know what? That, that's actually a solid number four. That's that's uh, That's a good number four. I can't hate on that. Okay, give me so your you number went, three and your number two since we already did my number three. All right, so number three, I had to include one classic dog, I feel. So I went with Lassie. I I understand your logic on that one, but I feel like we don't really know anything about Lassie. Like I know – to me, Lassie and Toto are in that same area of, yeah, they're both classic fictional dogs, but I don't have any kind of a connection with them. It's kind of like, hey, Wilt Chamberlain was a great basketball player. Yeah, OK, sure he was. I'm right there with you. I mean I – but I, I felt like I had to – you know, I had to put one on there. So that's – that that's who I chose. Um, and then my number two is Snoopy. Oh, that's my number two too. My number oh, two is Snoopy. Oh, that's that's uh, that's quite the list. I guess. I guess. Yeah. Why do you choose him as number two? I again, I felt like I had to. At the end of this, though, I had a lot of other ones that I wanted to put in. I originally had Lady and the Tramp in at number two, but I had to scratch them for Snoopy. My my number one's pretty universal. I mean, once again, my number one could be number five. It could be number four. It could be number ten. But uh, I, I had to go with maybe the most recognizable cartoon dog. Before you say and, uh, that, I think that you're going to make a big mistake with this. I think you're going to make a big mistake when you're going to say one dog when it really should be the other dog. But let's go ahead and hear it. <laughs> All right, all right. Uh, I'm going with Goofy. Oh, that's my number one too. I thought you were gonna wow. say. I thought you were gonna say Pluto. I think a lot of people forget that Pluto is is or that Goofy is a dog. I think so as well. I'm I'm just more in amazement. What do we have? Our our uh, our top four. We had one, two, and then we both had Scooby. Uh, you had him at three, and I had him at four. Yeah, our top three was basically the same. Can we talk about for a second, though, I don't think that in terms of, like, the modern era that Goofy needs to be scratched from this list because essentially he owned another dog. Goofy's dog was Pluto. How did Goofy own another dog and everybody thought that was okay? (laughs) All I know is when when I was trying to come up with a list of the top top dogs i was like you know and pluto pluto's like on my honorable mention but i you know i was i'm like you gotta go with goofy i mean goofy he's just he's a he's a solid number one everyone knows him whether you're young or old you know and give me between three and five other dogs that you would make an honorable mention argument for um hold on let me look at my list here well i can tell you one off the top of my head that i had was uh was uh, Blue from Blue's Clues. That's it. 
Who's the Clifford? Clifford, the big giant red dog. You can make an easy argument for him too. Yeah, Clifford. I have Benji, Wishbone. Ah, fuck Benji. All right, fuck him. Um, I have Underdog. I thought about Underdog as well, but I don't think that he has the cultural significance of Hong Kong Fooey. Then a, a couple that are more personal are uh, like, well, I I put Toto on there, like it was Toto or Lassie for me. Look, I'm from Kansas. I know all about Toto. <laughs> I have also Spunky from Rocco's Modern Life. God, there's so many good ones. And then my personal favorite, which is just a personal favorite, but uh, Hercules from the movie The Sandlot. That's another great one. Although that was actually, so, I would make a technical argument in the sense that he was a real dog. So it's not a fictional dog. No, but he, I mean, it, it was, I mean, but neither was Lassie. Lassie was also a real dog. They were yeah, actual dogs. But, but they were playing fictional characters. Mm, I don't know how I feel about this. I both feel like you've proven me wrong and I'm still right at the same time. Okay, here's the, here. let's do this really fast because we're kind of running out of a little bit of time. But I'm going to name a dog and you just go pass fail, okay? Okay. Balto. Fail. That was the first dog. That was the only dog I could think of. Uh, Ghost from Game of Thrones. <laughs> That's a wolf, right? Mm, I feel like it's kind of a dog. I feel like we're in, we're talking about the same kind of thing a little bit. I mean, I'm gonna say I'm a, I, I'm a, I'll say pass for for Ghost. Santa's little helper from The Simpsons. Oh, pass for sure. That's a hard pass on you. Yeah, he doesn't really mean that much necessarily. What about Scrappy Doo? <laughs> uh, pass. Yeah, I never liked Scrappy Doo. Not not a fan. Who else? Give me- Give me, uh, give me Hooch from Turner and Hooch. Never seen that movie. How about Lady, uh, Lady and the Tramp? Which one are? If you had to choose, you're taking Lady or you're taking the Tramp. Which one are you going with? Oh, give me the Lady all day. All right, I agree too. That Tramp looks like he's had a rough life. <laughs> Fido, <laughs> who's Fido? Fido, Fido. Uh, God, I feel like I know who Fido is, but I'm not, I don't really know who Fido is. How about the dog from the Neverending Story? Are we going to count that as a dog? Oh my god, dude, that's the best one! I can't believe I, I. Well, first, I don't really know if that counts, but that's a fantastic suggestion. Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. We're also starting a new YouTube channel. So some of the we're going to what we're going to do is we're going to take some of the clips from the interviews and we're going to put those up on YouTube because I think that a lot of the guests that we've had it would really help to visualize some of the things that they've talked about. So that's going to be profoundly pointless over on YouTube coming up in the next episode. We're going to be taking some risks, man. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.